Okay, welcome to the AdaptX podcast, where we have conversations with individuals who are building accessible products, advocating for inclusion, or excelling in adaptive sports. Our intention is never to speak on behalf of those with disabilities, but provide a platform for them to share their experience and hopefully make a more accessible world. Today, we are joined by Dr. Scott McNamara. Um, Dr. McNamara is an assistant professor at the University of New Hampshire within the Department of Kinesiology, who teaches physical education and adapted physical education courses. Dr. McNamara's research interest includes improving awareness of the importance of adapted PE, podcasting, educational leadership, and knowledge dissemination. Uh, Scott, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. And I really like your introduction that we are uh, not like, you know, speaking on behalf of people with disabilities. Yeah, that's always been uh, something that's a little tricky when I entered into this education space is like adopting the growth mindset of always learning through these podcast episodes and learning from conversations, but then being the quote unquote authority figure disseminating the information. Uh, so it's been a uh, tricky cause I, I fully respect the lift experience portion and I try to bring that as well as my anecdotal experience. But well, as, been... as a, as a fellow podcaster, cause I have a podcast as well. What's new in adaptive physical education, uh, plug, but, uh, it's, I would say, uh, a difficult thing to navigate. So I, th I like that you're kind of being forefront about it, about trying to be this quote unquote authority figure. So yeah. that's great. Yeah, thank you. Um, can you tell us a bit about your background and maybe when you first became interested in adaptive PE? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I have a background in adapted physical education and I came up, I, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan is where I'm originally from. Um, and I had a brother with a disability. Uh, it's 10 years younger than me. And I would kind of accompany my mom to IEP meetings and stuff like that. Um, you know, I started getting involved in some different physical activity programs as well around disability or somewhat in the same time period, early college. Um, and then I was actually getting my bachelor's in special education. And there was this awesome opportunity that appeared uh, at the end of my program, which was a master's, a fully funded master's program, which uh, I'm able to now pay forward because I have that same master's grant now. And uh, that kind of changed my career trajectory completely when I got into that. And I learned all about adapted physical education, adapted physical activity. Um, and then eventually I went with my mentor at Wayne State, Dr. Susanna Dillon to Texas Women's University, which I, my very, very bare office. Uh, that is currently like being whatever renovated. Uh, I have a whatever Texas Women's University, which is one of the birthplaces or uh, like we, we call it like the grandmother of adapted physical education. It's had a PhD program for about 50 years or, or more now uh, and, and a very successful line of people that have come out of that program. So I, I came out of that. So kind of a little bit about, I guess, how I came into the field. Yeah, I know one of your papers talks about attitudinal beliefs towards adaptive PE kind of being related to exposure to disabilities, um, yeah. understanding of terminology being related to exposure. Um, so my first introduction to disability was Special Olympics in high school. Um, prior to that, I had no exposure to disability. It wasn't even on my radar, and I was immediately hooked. Um, so... Do you see in your master's program people entering it without any introduction to disability? Or do you, in your kind of experience, do you always see people having some sort of affiliation? So, so, we, have a, so we have a brand new master's program in adapted physical education, and we got funding for it as well. So uh, we got a, a large grant from the Office of Special Education Program. So it's kind of brand new. I have we're still like, we haven't officially launched until the fall. So we have about, we have quite a few applicants or we, we not, we have a good amount of applicants already. So I'm kind of seeing who's coming in now. Uh, and I've been around these programs for a long time. Um, I would say most of them have, have had some experience. So mo if they come through a traditional physical education curriculum in their undergrad program, almost all of them across the US are gonna have that one course in adapted physical education. That's generally what is in the PE programs. Now, uh, and there's a reason for that. Many states 
do not have a state endorsement for adapted physical education. So any PE teacher can teach it and what they, how they get around that because um, most other uh, like areas around disability and teaching disability, you have a master's or something like that. But um, the way they get around that is states often say that that class suffices to allow them. Um, there are about 13, 14 states in the U.S. that do require a uh, state uh, or a specific adapted physical education licensure or endorsement to teach adapted physical education. But so most most uh, students go through these programs, they have one course. Sometimes those courses have a lab component. Uh, mine does where they're going to be working with um, people with disabilities. Um, in mine, it's young adults with disabilities and doing physical activity programming for them. It's a pretty common um, way that students are being exposed. And so I teach the undergrad and the graduate level course of that. So my undergrads are often being first exposed to disability in that way, which I think is a unique way. Um, you know, and not all of them. So I, and then some programs and, and ours included, we might get some students from like exercise science and, and such into these programs. I would say when I've worked around that group, which is not as frequent, sometimes that is, they have, haven't had as much exposure around disability. Um, you know, and again, that one class isn't always a lot of exposure either. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, because I, I think it's pretty clear in the literature that traditional PE teachers don't feel adequately um, ready to support individuals with disabilities in the classroom. So if it's pretty clear that one course isn't enough, do you think there's going to be a trend towards prioritizing inclusion more in so, the undergraduate PE curriculum? What, I'll talk about inclusion separately, because I don't, I don't conceive them as the same thing. Because adapted physical education is a special education service, um, and I can I can define how I view inclusion in a second as well. But uh, do I think it's a trend? Maybe. Um, you know, th this this grant that I received and and is about forty some years old, and it actually comes with the inception of special education laws and such, which first uh, came into place in nineteen seventy five. You know, and I think that, yes, you're absolutely right. Like, as far as what we hear around physical education and disabilities, that physical educators often feel under-equipped, uh, overwhelmed, don't don't have the resources, don't have the support, um, don't always know where to go. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, as well as we also know that physical education sometimes has cult, been called, quote unquote, a dumping ground for people with disabilities, which is kind of the idea is that students with disabilities might be in like self-contained classes all day and have little to no interaction with their, uh, their peers without disability. And then they just put them in PE as a kind of a social, like the IEP team or parents or teachers, they'll put them in PE without any kind of talking with the PE teacher or anything like that. And they'll put them in there just because they view that as, Hey, we're, they're going to get some socialization in there. But, um, you know, that, can be overwhelming when, you know, the PE teacher doesn't have, they already have maybe bigger class sizes than everyone else. They don't have the background knowledge or support. Um, and, and PE is often, you know, although yes, there's some great socializing that can occur, you know, under the wrong circumstances or not, you know, great circumstances, like, you know, the body's put on display where, you know, so you're moving and maybe if you move a little differently, um, you know, that can be a place for bullying to occur or feeling feeling lonely or feeling ridiculed, um, as well as, you know, there might be a some spots in physical education that there's less um, supervision than in others, such as like in the locker room. That's not to, to say that integrated settings aren't, cannot be good for them, but uh, for people with disabilities, but at the same time, P teachers are often kind of coming in pretty ill-equipped to be that first place uh, that they're that they're supposed to be, you know, integrated into uh, non-disabled settings. Does that dumping ground kind of uh, summarize the fact that PE as a whole is kind of undervalued compared to other academic subjects? Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. It's a uh, physical education has been, you know very much in the literature and probably like just like our own experiences like very much marginalized in a lot of different ways uh and that goes to like you know how it's discussed in the media or movies you know it's often like a uh you know quote unquote dumb jock kind of 
uh, setting and what, you know, throwing out the dodgeballs or whatever it might be. So the like learning value of it's very low. The, the idea of the teacher as an actual teacher is often low. We call it gym class, which is a setting instead of the curriculum, physical education. Um, and so, you know, there's lots of ways. An interesting uh, concept that's been pushed a little bit the last few years is that it's duly marginalized, uh, adapted physical education is, in the idea that it's um, you know special education and physical education. So it's like these two areas that often have been uh, in different ways kind of marginalized in the educational system. I know in one of your papers that you shared with me that you published last year, you kind of showed that like admins are supposed to oversee these programs, but then admins have no experience <laughs> with APE. So it's like, why are they the ones that are dictating things? And then teachers feel like those admins are kind of deterring them from doing what they need to do. What makes a healthy educational ecosystem in a school setting between admins, APE, traditional PE? Thanks for reading my papers. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and and that's been pretty not out looked at is just physical education and school administrators in general. Um, we did a scoping review a few years ago on, and that's like kind of just seeing all like what's the literature out there, um, and over like a twenty year period, just in physical education and then school administrators, educational leadership, and I think we found about thirty articles over a twenty year period which maybe that sounds like a lot, but like, it's really not. It's like, you know, and they're all focused on different things. So we don't totally understand like how to answer that question. And that's just in physical education, not even adapted physical education in school administrators. Like what does a healthy environment look like? What does a good relationship look like? What we do know is that um, those administrators are key and essential to having a uh, productive, physical education class curriculum, as well as teachers. Um, we know that that relationship is really crucial, but we don't still fully understand their views and value system around physical education. What the literature suggests is that it's not great, uh, that their understanding of physical education and adapted physical education and special education uh -huh, is often not great, you know, um, and with what we do know, though, is um, they might be a little bit more keyed in on maybe special education or physical education, and that's where we can kind of communicate with them. Um, but I would say a healthy place is where there's a lot of collaboration occurring. Um, best practice around adaptive physical education is that they're con collaborating with the IEP team, and a best practice within there is that they might even create a motor team where everyone that's working in the uh, motor realm uh, like the occupational therapist, the physical therapist, and the APE teacher, and sometimes maybe like a speech and language pathologist are all working together just on the motor aspect of it. Um, it you know, that's sadly not a common trend, but it is in certain places. And that's a really great place uh, where like really great strategies and such can kind of happen in, in collaboration. I would also say just, yeah, like, I mean, when we did interviews with APE teachers, we would find that, you know, well, we asked them, how does your administrator support you? And some of them would laugh or, um, you know, ask us, what do you mean? And uh, like, you know, like that's telling. Some of them told us they'd never been uh, super, uh, evaluated by their school administrator or administrators never been in their gymnasium within a 30 year period. Uh, you know, so, so those experiences devalue the field, but they also make the teachers a not have accountability and B just kind of feel like, yeah, pretty low on the totem pole. Um, and I think those are some like kind of quotes from the, those papers as feeling low on the totem pole, uh, you know, or not being invited to uh, holiday parties, not walking into the schools because maybe they're in multiple schools and the administrator is not knowing their names. Um, you know, those are all examples of what poorer experiences are like. So I would say the opposite of all those is having a meaningful relationship, being invited to things, um, you know, having like feeling like, you know, your administrators trying to get to know your curriculum, your standards, holding, evaluating you, holding you accountable, um, trying to like work with you. 
Um, you know, I do, I think that administrators are really, really vital to that. There are positive experiences I've also heard, and often it's around um, administrators that are very supportive, um, you know, and are asking questions, are evaluating, are coming from a place of um, wanting to learn more and, and support uh, with that too. You know, I don't know if it's always the, the chicken or the egg comes first, but it seems like those places where there's really positive experiences, it's there's often really good APE PE teachers there. And I don't know, you know, that's again, the chicken or the egg. Is it that the APE PE teacher is there and it's great. So the administrators, you know, identifies a really good teacher and then is, is putting time and effort into it or, and, or is it, are they really great because the administrators there um, have cultivated an atmosphere or culture um, that that allows uh, you know effective teachers to be there? Those different parts of the motor team, so APE, PT, OT. Sometimes I'll get high school students that will ask me about like my career path. So I started with special ed, decided about halfway through university that I wanted to open my gym for my Special Olympics athletes and then spent a few years trying to figure out how to do that. And there wasn't really a model to follow. There wasn't really a specific degree that was going to be a prerequisite for getting me there. Um, and a large part of why my gym might have been successful from uh, the onset was because I spent so many years with Special Olympics and Best Buddies kind of building up a community. But people will often like ask me what they should major in when they go to college. And I'm like, uh I don't know how much the major they're like, I want to do what you do. Like, and like, Oh, well, that's great. Um, but I'm not sure exactly how much the major like gets you there. So, um, so that's not to say it's not important. If someone is interested in working with individuals with disabilities in a physically active environment, would you have any specific recommendations for them in terms of APE, PT, OT, obviously they're vastly different, but yeah. are there advantages to one, cons to one? Yeah, I mean, uh, they're all, all the above. I would recommend people trying to, you know, get their degrees and such in these areas. I do hear what you say, especially in something like what you're doing, that there's not really a great, like, this degree gets you there. I mean, probably a general exercise science degree would be the best route for someone like you is yep. if someone was coming to me and then um, advocating that they, um, you know, they do some maybe ACSM kind of certifications, uh, the inclusive fitness trainer, uh, the autism exercise connection. Those would be kind of areas I would kind of push them. Then you get into like, so then that's like a different realm than mine in the way that there's a lot of certifications, a lot of like licensures that we need. So, you know, you go into any of those that you just mentioned, you need a license, which means you have to get the certain degrees. Um, with that, and I work really closely with the OT department here. I uh, used to work a lot with the PTs and OTs in my school when I worked um, in, in the school setting. Um, I would say that you know, I, I think that I think that there's just there's a lot of options. Um, yeah, not to say one's better than the other. I, I think there's more overlap with PT and APE than sometimes with OT and the others. OT is kind of really broad, focuses on vocational areas and sensory integration often, and sometimes within a physical activity setting, where you know PT is very much on that gross motor skill. Um, OT is very much on the fine motor skill and APE puts it all into a curriculum space uh, where we're, te we're teaching a curriculum and PTs and OTs are related service personnel in the school settings, meaning they're often trying to provide the student um, the prerequisite skills and abilities so they can access the curriculum uh, where we are adapting a curriculum to meet the child's needs. They we should ideally all be like working together quite a bit. Um, I think, you know, they're all great places to kind of move your career. I think there's obviously differences in, um, in areas of focus and specialty. There's time as well. Um, the APE track's gonna be the le least time intensive out of all those other tracks. I think most PTs are now also having to get a doctorate. 
on, I think I've heard that the OT, and I don't want to speak out of turn because I don't, this, these are not my areas, but I believe they're, you know, that's a trend in their field as well to go for that doctorate. But um, I think it's important that we are all working together. Um, yeah. So uh, a topic that we've talked about over the last few years, usually when I have uh, something come up and I kind of want to vet some of my thought process, I've, I've reached out to you. So um, mentioned earlier, uh, are PE teachers adequately knowledgeable about disabilities and inclusion? And you said the two are separate. So how do you define inclusion? Yeah, well, I just, and I think there's been uh, Justin Hagel, who is a yeah. good friend, a colleague of mine, and also somebody I really look up to. He's written extensively on inclusion. And I, I really, um, I really subscribe to what, how he's kind of framed it. And he, he didn't create that idea of how he frames it either. There's disability scholars, disability study scholars that have kind of created this about and, and discussed it. Uh, and he has a great paper called The Inclusion Illusion. And uh, I, I would advocate anyone to read it. And uh, the inclusion illusion is the idea is that we often call inclusion something that it's not. And we're often calling it inclusion to make ourselves feel better versus to actually benefit um, people with disabilities. And so we often refer to inclusion as simply people with and without disabilities being in the same space as each other. But, um, you know, and I think that can be either, you know, an integrated space, maybe sometimes an accessible space uh, and inclusion. I, I conceive it as, and again, many scholars have kind of uh, subscribed to this idea of that is a sense of belonging and acceptance uh, and that you can have those in a variety of settings. And then also another idea that's been put for, forth um, is that you're on an inclusion spectrum like so that at any point in time in any place we can feel different levels of inclusion based on how we're feeling our relationships around us what's being said and done uh and that you know at, at all points we are, all of us are at different levels of feeling like an inclusive experience and so i often um when i discuss inclusion i'm talking about an inclusive experience rather than a setting uh, or a service. Um, and so I often look at it from that and, and there's, and in those discussions, we sometimes talk about how the conflation of integration and inclusion potentially can have some, um, harmful effects or, uh, to people with disabilities and that we frame things again, we call it inclusive because that's framing it as this really positive thing, but then some things are called inclusive, but they might not be doing, they might be, um, pushing more ableist norms, which are, you know, discriminatory uh, norms, um, but they put that label on it to kind of mask themselves as that. And really, we're just talking about integration. Um, you know, I won't name the tool, but there's a tool in physical education that I think has some of this, and it's somewhat new, and it has the word inclusion in it. It says it's measuring inclusion, yet all it's like it's asking for is like, do students with and without disabilities stand in line together? Literally one of the things, are they get, getting water together or like the drinking fountains, I think is one of them. And there's other ones around, um, yeah, like their interaction with one another. Well, and then you're rating whether inclusion's occurring. Well, you know, that to me, just having people stand in line together um, doesn't mean really anything. I, I would think that should be taken for granted if they want to be in the same room together, uh, you know, especially when I view it as an experience, because that says nothing to me. And so I would actually say, and then on the other end, a teacher would take that who might not have a lot of experience in inclusion or disability or adaptive physical education, take that to their measurement tool and say, I have an inclusion, uh, inclusive PE experience or inclusion PE class occurring. So I don't need to do anything different. And so that also can be how, un, um, you know, when we label it like that, uh, if the goal is in inclusion, which is maybe just merely integration, people will do that and then think that they're doing everything and they don't need to do more. Yeah, I'm familiar with that scale. So I guess you would more so be looking at interviewing 
the students themselves to see how they perceive their experience and how they feel a sense of belonging and acceptance within that environment? I think that's really important. Um, you know, I don't want to go on in that scale, but like there's good things in that scale as well that talk about like different, like differentiation and accommodations and equipment adaptations and all that. Like, you know, those are ways to also look at how, how well are we providing, uh, you know, our services. But in my view, when we're talking about inclusion explicitly, I think it's really important, yes, to hear the voices because there's really no other way to understand um, their experiences. Because if I'm, if I'm trying to understand their experiences, I can't do that merely by uh, looking I'm around sorry, the room. That. That, that, so if that's what we actually want to do, and there's times that we like that's hard to do that's time consuming so maybe at sometimes we do want to just do a checklist of what am i doing to provide differentiated instruction accommodations and modifications which i know uh, based on literature are necessary to uh, have better outcomes it's pretty similar to accessibility i suppose where something can be physically accessible but that doesn't mean that the individual accessing the environment is enjoying the experience. Uh, so we kind of differentiate between accessibility and usability, I suppose. Like accessible, you can get into the building, but usable, you actually enjoy the experience and it's catered to your needs and it supports your needs. Um, so it, it's that like, yeah, multidisciplinary aspect of accessibility. Um, so on the sense of like, inclusion is a sense of belonging and acceptance. So does inclusion in that way not really identify the presence of a disability? No, I, I, I don't think that that has to do with, uh, you know, I, I, I think you can frame disability in a lot of ways. And I think that, uh, you know, I, I kind of come from like an embodied uh, perspective that, that uh, you know, and I come from a, a variety of like a human rights lens of disability, that disability is a, uh, can be conceptualized as a community, a civil rights group uh, with their own like shared experiences and culture. I also think that it can be something that's embodied and experienced through the body uh, around disability. But, you know, I don't really uh, generally don't ascribe from a medical model where we would kind of like look at it from a deficit based. I do think that models of disability are used based on context, though. So I don't think that there's like a never on a lot of this stuff. But um but yeah, so like, I, I don't think that inclusion, like, I think you can be anybody with any kind of background and have an inclusive experience. Now, what the, like, what we know is that often, um, you know, disabled children or p children with disabilities are, um, you know, not having inclusive experiences from the literature. That's what they're saying. Um, at the same time, I, I'm not always sure if like they're, if children with non-disabled children are not having inclusive, I haven't seen the literature on that. It's actually something I've wondered um, is who, who's having these inclusive experiences. Uh, because again, I can't view them. Uh, somebody has to voice them uh, and we're all on that. So no, I don't, I don't see disability as being, uh, would not preclude somebody. Um, it's rather the environment and, and their experiences in that environment around disability. So I think, that, I think um, children with disabilities can have inclusive experiences um, just based on, but it has to be, you know, an environment and a setting that's going to allow them to have inclusive experiences. I would love if you could kind of critique my gym uh, and my thought process, I guess, in terms of how I set it up. So like when I first started uh, unified sports through special Olympics was my, my first idea. So it was a volunteer, exercising or playing a sport alongside an athlete with a disability. And that was uh, overwhelmingly positive. It, obviously, it was incredibly positive in my life in terms of influencing my career path. So we started with a few classes a week, um, had some high school athletes who were training with us for their own sport, hang out after their workouts, stay for those classes, support the athletes who needed help. Over time, we've moved a little bit towards like a semi-private model uh, where regardless of whether you have a disability or not, you have a program written for you. Uh, so that has allowed people to really train at any time of the day uh, because they're all getting a pretty similar service in terms of everyone is getting coached, whether you're playing a collegiate sport or whether 
you're just trying to become healthier and you have a diagnosis. Um, so with that, it's removed some of the barriers of like, you can only train Mondays and Thursdays at 5 PM. Mm -hmm. Like you're able to access the gym at whatever is most convenient to you. So to me, that was a step towards being more inclusive. People could dictate what environment they felt most welcomed or most comfortable in. Uh, if you want to go to a couple of sessions a week, we have two sessions a week where it ends up being a lot of our athletes with disabilities. If you want to go to those sessions, they're often your classmates. You maybe used to be in, in school with them. You've both aged out and you want to stay in touch with those friends. You can go to that session. If you'd rather train with the high schoolers, if you'd rather train with the uh, quote unquote neurotypical adults, you can go there. Um, so where I guess maybe just with that global view of, of our business model, um, do you identify any issues or how would I improve it? No, I don't. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, what I, I ascribe to from my philosophical standpoint is options. Um, and I, I, I push like I, with my class, um, you know, one of the first days, I ask everyone in there, you know, how many sports they played and all that. And I get a big, big, you know, like big array of them and, and a lot. And I had a lot of people that used to play a lot of sports uh, and do a lot of different physical activities. Uh, what we know is that people with disabilities often have much more narrow uh, physical activity kind of areas that they can, they can participate in. Uh, and even when they do special Olympics, it's like, well, we're doing basketball this season you know it's like where i can go and go to like you know within 10 miles of my house i can do pickleball tennis like all these different things i can do either individually or as a group or whatever um and i, I can self-select that so i think the more options that we and also with that like i can do those in a men's league i can do them in a co-ed league i can do like you know different ages like there's all these kind of like options that i have um so i i you know i advocate for autonomous self-autonomous where student like people can select their own things so i think the more opportunities for them to do that is good um you know i so i don't really have a critique on your model i think it's a good model i think i just think that we should have like you know we should have, uh, like, you know, if they want to go to their local YMCA, that should be accessible as well. Like they, they should have different, like they, they should have any option that I have is, is, or, you know, we, we should have, um, yeah, yeah. Those you know, uh, obviously, yeah, that's essential. But at the end of the day, there are barriers. Someone with down syndrome can't just go play pickleball with you as successfully Unless yeah, no, there's I mean, some some level of support, they can they can some like many yeah. times they can. It's just there's often you know, and it does change. Like, like yes, there's like there's motor skill things, there's health things, but generally a lot of those things are attitudinal, uh, right. you know, structural um, issues that either they don't feel like they're welcome there, or you know, or they they really aren't welcome there. Yeah. Um. You know, and and those things. So yes, I but I think that like. You know, I think that those settings are, are, are good for them, um, you know, and you asked a question earlier about inclusion um, and you might have asked this before the podcast started. I can't remember, but you asked a question about like, can inclusion happen in segregated settings, uh, which is maybe a little bit what you're getting at, too, with this. And uh, I believe you can um, have inclusion because I see it as a sense of belonging and acceptance. So I think you can like I think that. Um, like I, I think in a way there's a little bit of a problem that we often do again from, I think underlying ableist, uh, norms is that we say that a disabled context or setting where people with disabilities are interacting with each other is less than settings that are predominantly for non-disabled groups. And I think in just that way, like, and again, options options, 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 I should have. And if that disabled setting, that group, that setting for disabled people or people with disabilities has things that are less than or othering, less resources, that's not, then that's not equitable. But if they're in equitable settings and they're doing things that they enjoy, they're in a community that they enjoy, um, like why, why is the presence of non-disabled people 
Um, exactly. Yeah. I'm not. And again, I'm not saying that I'm not, I think when I say these things, sometimes people think that I'm pushing against, um, you know, having integrated settings. I'm not whatsoever. And I think many times that's what people want. People with and without disabilities want to be in integrated settings. That's, they don't identify with the disability community. Um, you know, that those are things that they want. But I, what I philosophically move towards is freedom of choice and autonomy over those choices. And, uh, you know, if I think a lot of people in a lot of different communities self-select into participating in something that they ascribe to as their community. And so with that, I then see zero issue of you like, you know, Paralympics could be one of these, although I think there's problems around that as well, because Paralympians don't, you know, I think there's a little bit of like a community. Um, they're often like, you know, they might want to be Olympians or conceived as Olympians and they are Olympians, but sometimes they're othered into this category. But anyways, I think that if you want to play that, like be a Paralympian and, and or do disability sports in your community, uh, with other people with disabilities like that makes sense and like that's fine um you know i think i think it's self-selection into those things is is like and and not having barriers because like you can't participate in my thing uh we want people to have the ability and accessibility such as i have to like you know participate in a huge multitude of activities and physical activities that i self-select in uh you know so if i join a men's league I can have an inclusive experience in there and then nobody's judging me for that. Um, you know, but again, if we're only allowed to go into disability settings, because we've said that's only place that you're allowed to be, that's problematic as well. Yeah. Yeah. And my, my ability or my, um, interest in understanding this is, is not to critique anyone's model. It's to refine my own. And if I'm going to be in a position to teach other people, how to promote inclusion of individuals with disabilities in a fitness environment. I want to make sure it's aligned with what Justin is writing about, what your thought process is, what the literature says, what the lived experiences of those with disabilities says. So like, I fully agree with the options thing. That's, that's kind of over the last couple of years, it might've even been a conversation with you a few years ago that kind of uh, pointed me in that direction from like, disability classes, non-disability classes, et cetera, to the point of like, how can anyone seamlessly coexist in this environment? But if a, if options is, is kind of the North star, a program that only supports disabilities doesn't give you the option to train in other environments. And so it's maybe also cause like sometimes nonprofits have like a narrow mission. Like yeah. our mission is to create environments for people with disabilities to train. Uh, we function as a for-profit, so it, it's not refined in that way, but yeah. Yeah. I don't know, I, but if, at the I don't same, know if you understand at the same what time, I'm getting at. No, I understand. But I think at the same time, like, you know, you're, you're a, a, a one, I don't think what you're doing alone is, is problematic. I think what might be problematic is that there's no, maybe other options out there. Like, you know, you're one group, you're one avenue. Right. Like if is like, but, you know, if you're doing that and there's all these other options available, uh, then there's really no problem. But the, I think the issue is not like just your group, really, it's that there's no options. Uh, and, you know, and then really like in fitness settings, like in fitness centers, it's ridiculous to think that, um, you know, especially like a YMCA, which are like their whole missions around, um, you know, physical activity in healthy communities, uh, that they're not accessible to everyone. Um, they, that should be like an avenue where everyone, you know, everything's accessible for everyone. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and, and again, much of it's just attitudinal or, or, you know, very, very simple equipment adaptations. Um, that's the, the variety, but then, you know, training and such, and you might want, um, very specific training to, uh, you know, specific to your you and your disability because then at that point you're really getting to an exercise science world and maybe there are things about your body that's different that you want someone with that expertise to train you um i i i you know i think 
people do that type of stuff around other groups that they're ascribed to all the time. I really just think it's really about, yeah, again, options. Like what is the, like, we, we want to open doors and not shut them. So I don't see, I, anyways, I don't see a big issue with having a disability specific program as long as, you know, there's other programs that are out there. The only thing that that person, that business owner can control is, is their program. Exactly. So, so, yeah. should so, so, they, so should yeah. they have some sort of responsibility to create those options or should they just be like, oh, there's other options out there. That's sufficient. I mean, I am. I, my guess is most of these kind of groups are more mon pa that we're talking about. Like I, I can, I think I can advocate for a YMCA again or LA fitness or something like that to have I think they need to do better (laughs) because they're massive, you know, Um, and they have the resources and the the ability to really do that. I think when you're talking about like, you know, ma and pa kind of fitness centers, I think my critique's going to be a lot lower. Um, Not that there wouldn't be one in a very, like, you know, whatever from one to one. Um, But, you know, I think that, yeah, I think, I think that they're, what their options are going to be much more narrow. Um, yeah. So I think it's okay to have more narrow options. I'm part of uh, part of an inclusive health coalition, which is like all the New Hampshire YMCA's, and then uh, a couple of representatives from UNH and Crotchet Mountain and stuff. And the, what we're trying to figure out, I guess, is, is exactly what you said. Like, why? What What can the Y's do to better support people with disabilities? Seems like some of the the comments are like, "Oh, we'll have." Some day have programs, some adult service programs come in and use our facilities, but they're not really getting services. They're just maybe you walking on a treadmill or some of the people are just sitting while a couple other people work out. So it's like how what I'm my portion of it is hopefully educating some of the YMCA staff on how to train specific disabilities um, more effectively so they can better support. Uh, clients with disabilities that come into the YMCA's, but they have a different model than me. Um, they have a great model in that accessible price point, hopefully accessible layouts. Um, so that's why it's been it's been a fun group to work with. Um, but there's definitely improvements, and they they understand that there's improvements to be made to be more inclusive or welcoming. I'm just looking up a a paper real quick as we talk about this because I want to get the um, the facts, right. But yeah. Uh, and I, I definitely see that as like a really bad, a really big issue is like more in that kind of sphere than I think the mon pop, because again, I think that if you want, like, especially something like what you do and you probably have some practical experience in exercise and physical activity training, mm-hmm. um, specific, specific disabilities. And if you want that, like, why shouldn't you have that option? Um, but you know, if you go to the YMCA, like I think a lot of th- times people with disabilities are turned away um, at that at that avenue. Maybe not getting a membership, but like, do you have a fitness trainer that I can work with? Uh, and like, then it's like, uh, yeah, um, you know. And so there's a paper by Sean Healy that came out in 2022, um, and it's called "The Gatekeepers to Fitness," and he did a really really interesting study where he uh, emailed. uh, 800 uh, fitness centers across the nation and in that um, he looked at he did like four different types of emails he either did like no disability mentioned uh, vision loss spinal cord injury or being autistic and mentioned that within each of the emails about membership and trainers and what he found was that um, I'll, I'll tell you so Receiving a positive response were like 40 to 30% uh, less likely for individuals with vision loss and spinal cord injuries um, than those without disabilities. And then this, and then it was 60% to 40% lower um, around personal training amongst those same two groups. Autism was not as profound in this study. Um, and I'm just reading the abstract right now because I couldn't remember, but I found that to be really, really interesting. So they sent an email 
and uh, you know, no response or negative responses. Basically, no, we don't do that. We're so much higher in those groups. And he was emailing like the bigger, like the bigger ones, the bigger things out there that most people are going to be. That's what most people are going to access. And do you think those are attitudinal beliefs that are preventing those larger misunderstandings of the socioeconomic status and spending power of people with disabilities or just a genuine disinterest? I think it's, I think it's, I I don't know, uh, but I think it's, I think it's a lot of things. I think it's, yeah, generally attitudinal and structural. Um, You know, they might feel that they don't have the capacity to do that. I think there's nervousness. There's, you know, I don't have training in this. And some of those are legit. Like if I don't have any training, you know, um, like, you know, so that's, I mean, that, that's, that is an issue, you know, uh, if I have a person with a spinal cord injury, uh, and I have zero training in that, do I feel comfortable with that? Uh, well, if I don't, which maybe I shouldn't, um, you know, how do I even get that training? So, I mean, there's, there, that so those are structural issues, not just attitudinal barriers, but it's a mix. Yeah. Yeah. That's been one of the tricky things with like the course that we teach on, adaptive fitness, inclusive fitness, whatever you want to call it, probably more so adaptive fitness, but like not pretending to be rehabilitating anyone, like not pretending to be a physical therapist. But at the same time, if the only activity that individuals with disabilities can access is PT, because they're conditioned to believe that disability is synonymous with injury or um, they get PT in school, so they think that they have to go to physical therapy. Um, if they never get access to a recreation environment because all fitness professionals are worried about working with people with disabilities, then that's not options. So that's where we kind of identified that like education was the place that we could have the largest impact. Uh, so that's why we've been trying to uh, teach as many people as possible. What are the Agreed. biggest bar- yeah <laughs> what are the biggest barriers to better health and fitness for people with disabilities I mean uh, in general uh, I mean it's probably attitudinal and structural kind of like we said those are probably the biggest ones I, I think that oftentimes small adaptations if if no sometimes no adaptations are necessary uh, and oftentimes it's yeah it's that people either feel um, like the dis- people with disabilities or maybe the family member feels like that's not for us or those those actual systems and powers and places um, explicitly or implicitly do put out messages of this is not for you. Um, and so I, I think I think a lot of it is just access and awareness. And um, at least I think that that would go a long way. Um, to addressing those around health and physical activity option. And again, options like, you know, a lot of people that I know, they go to the gym or maybe they do a solo sport, like, like swimming or golfing, or maybe they like team sports. Well, most people without disabilities have options to any one of those things, any day of the week. Um, and people with disabilities, even though they might have access to it, they might not feel it to have access to it because of, um, a lot of societal barriers that are there. Uh, to date, you've published uh, almost 60 peer-reviewed papers and given nearly 100 uh, presentations. Uh, what are your current research interests and what do you kind of hope to work on over the next three to five years, maybe? Three to five years, wow. Five to ten. Uh, <laughs> I would say like one, I, I, I don't plan out that far. Um, yeah. Thank you. Uh, I, yeah, I do a lot of studies. Um, I, I have a few going on right now. One that I like, uh, well, I'm doing some on like understanding gatekeepers as well that I really like what's going on. That's kind of something I'm currently doing. Like right before this, I was writing one of the manuscripts for to starting to, and that's understanding. I often look at in the school settings, I look at parents, administrators, PE teachers, special educators, and not the child. Um, as gatekeepers to physical education, physical activity and uh, adaptive physical education services. So I want to understand, like, I think there's been a lot of studies that looked at one of those groups. Like, so I've done some on school administrators, but I'm trying to now look at it as this kind of uh, 
bigger group of all these decision makers around adapted physical education, understand their values and perspectives and why they may or may not be um, allowing for adapted physical education services to be provided. Um, and then the quality as well. Another one that I've been really, really interested in, and right now I'm, I'm kind of doing it more broadly, so it's not even really about uh, adaptive physical education, but it's understanding better the research to practice gap that we're always talking about in uh, different settings. And so uh, we just did a study where we surveyed a, a decent number of higher ed professionals that teach PE classes, and then, we t and then a somewhat similar number of teachers and we asked them their definition of research and where they access research. And uh, we're still in the kind of finishing up the analysis phase, but we did find a statistical significant difference um, that had, I think, a, a small to medium effect size around, um, you know, the academics defined uh, research is like a very kind of empirical, systematic way. And practitioners might be referring to it from a more you know, um, gathering information where, uh, you know, higher ed people are often talking about like a systematic generalizations, these things that we see in, in research papers and also where we access it. So, uh, you know, teachers very rarely are using journals, probably to nobody's surprise or textbooks, rather they're using like social media. Um, but both groups are going to conferences quite a bit, which is probably where that information can happen. But I, I just think that's interesting because it begs the question of like, if we have different definitions of research and then we're talking about a research to practice gap, how, like we need to address even how we're conceptualizing it um, at a very base level. Cause when I say research and then I talk to a teacher, they might be thinking I'm talking about a different type of research than um, and vice versa. So that's something yeah. that I've been kind of ingrained in a little bit uh, as of recent that was that was kind of going to be my question, and you referred to it as the research to to practice gap there. So, how can you make sure that these findings or an ever evolving um, definition of inclusion accessibility, uh, how can you make sure it it uh, is implemented into practice as well? Uh, I think you know. I don't know, <laughs> you know, these, these questions you're asking me, you know, they're great questions. I don't always have the best answer, but I would say, try, <laughs> I'd say talk to, um, I think like an important thing is, uh, humility, um, in these conversations from my standpoint as a professor, um, I hate when I see professors kind of stand up with a level of authority, um, or expertise, I think can be used that in that vein of like, you know, as you said at the beginning, like I, like we are trying to understand lived experiences of people and such. Um, and so I think humility is really important in, in how we do that communication and that we are learning from one another um, as well. So it shouldn't just be a one directional way that we're communicating either, um, which I think often it is. Uh, so it's a two way communication uh, because maybe I need to learn how they're conceptualizing research as well. Like maybe my view of research is more narrow than it needs to be. Um, and then I think, I think like forums like this podcasting, I don't see an issue with social media as long as there's some, some vetting of the information that's going through. Um, so I think, yeah, I think accessible things. I, I would go with the same idea that I was pushing before is options. So how can I provide different options of knowledge? That's, that's, that's important. Um, you know, that's like, if, research articles are only in journals, we know that that research to practice gaps going to persist. So then what are the options? And, and I think, I think there's still a place for those journals where we can kind of get really, you know, nitty gritty into language and methodology and all that. Um, obviously, but like, how do we then disseminate that? And what are the, all these different options maybe that we could provide that information such as podcasting? You just received a large grant to um, to develop this one year master's and APE program at UNH. Uh, hopefully, I'm not uh, misarticulating that. But what uh, what do you think is going to be superior about that program to other APEs, or or what, what do you what do you hope it does uh, differently than other programs? I mean, 
I I don't even know if I'm I would compare myself right now to other programs. Um, I think that in general, so we're the only funded master's program, uh, fully funded. Although the University of Virginia has a more unique funding and more unique program, but our closest geographical uh, place would be in the uh, University of Wisconsin, Madison. Uh, sorry, Lacrosse, oh, which is so that's you know quite far away from us geographically as far. So we do have funding. And with that funding, we have obligations to our students or our students have obligations. So they have to work about 80 to 100 hours in the field outside of their coursework um, a semester. They're going to go to conferences. They're going to present at conferences. So I think those things will make it unique in how involved they are in the field um, where they're going to be like really teaching. They're going to be really in, engaged in it. And I also think that I think that in general, we're going to have them engaged in a good level of research and, and engaging and reading like uh, primary source literature, as well as engaging a little bit of research. So I think those things would make us a little bit more unique, um, you know, but I, I think that there's there's several quality P, uh, APE programs and we just have to get people to take them because we have such a severe need of APE teachers um, in this region, especially. How do you gauge the efficacy of an educational curriculum? It's uh, it's something that I've been trying to figure out is how I measure whether the course that we teach is both adequate and applied and comprehensive, I suppose. I think that's hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you ask, you're asking hard questions, my man. Um, <laughs> I would just say, uh, I don't know. Um, I think obviously we get student feedback, uh, which is a good kind of indicator or at least a level of acceptability um, of what you're teaching. So what are the students feedback? I've also gotten assignments and stuff and gotten asked the students like gotten a kind of cohort of students and got did a little focus group on those things um, to help myself. But, you know, I think as far as the outcomes go, uh, you know, I think there's job placement outcomes that we can look at. Are they getting in the field? Um, we also like we've surveyed some of our alumni uh, in our undergrad program about, you know, their experience and such. But well, I think those things are hard. I think you also have to reflect a lot. I think that's probably the number one thing is engage and learn. You know, I'm a podcaster as well. And one of the things that I found is that and I, I started mine a long time ago at the when these things were quite novel. And uh, I found that doing what you're doing right now. Um, which is engaging with people, preparing questions, uh, was this tremendous professional development experience that I didn't, I think I didn't quite understand I was getting myself into at the beginning. Um, so I think in, to me, like engaging with colleagues, with peers, with, you know, people in different worlds and kind of having these conversations is really vital to your growth and, and then being able to reflect on your curriculum. Um, and then, you know, maybe how well, like for me, how well does it, um, align with our national APINs, uh, Adaptive Physical Education National Standards. But again, that's a reflective process of kind of asking yourself and re-reviewing your syllabi and all of that. So I think, you know, there's no no clear answer on some of that. Yeah, it's, and uh, maybe they're hard questions, but they're just uh, things that I'm hoping selfishly to, to use <laughs> to improve what I'm doing. Um, and so you've been doing the podcasting for a lot longer. Um, what are what makes a what makes a good podcast? What makes a um, effective educational podcast? I think a good one is a good personality to go with it. Uh, like with your guest, I think stories are good. Um, I all which I don't know if I've given a lot of stories. I've given like a lot of like conceptual things. I actually would say that I really like doing big picture ones as well, like where it's like, like why, <laughs> or like the philosophy of it. Um, and usually when I enjoy one a lot, the viewers usually really like it too. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think interesting guest is like, and then interesting topics. And I think, I think difficult or ambiguous questions are good. You kind of get really into like, sphere of like kind of like what is the purpose of all this stuff I, I i look at the purpose of podcast and there's i've done a little bit of literature on this as well the purpose to me about podcasting is more about um 
perspective changing or understanding different perspectives or uh, learning the basics about a new topic. I don't think that these types of podcasts are great for, like, I wouldn't say listen to, like, you know, my podcast to three of my podcasts so you can be prepared to take the APINS exam. Like, it's more about um, reflecting, understanding different ways to view things, challenging yourself. And so a podcast kind of helps propel that. I think it can um, lead to insightful conversations and, and be educational. Yeah, I think sometimes I'm, I'm vetting whether the questions I'm asking are for myself or for my audience or, um, yeah, just like um, after every episode almost, I, I usually put stuff in a, in a Google Doc that's just tentatively named like Fictions and Fallacies of Inclusion. And it's t- like I have... I have my preconceived notions, and then if a guest shares something that contradicts that, I I make note of it. Um, or if it's a a lens that I hadn't looked at a problem through, I'll I'll add it and I'll I'll reconsider that. So I think if I I know who I want my audience to be, which is fitness professionals who want to create more inclusive environments, and if I'm trying to tackle the same problem, then I feel like being somewhat selfish in terms of the questions I ask and the outcomes that I'm intending will indirectly benefit them as well. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think, I think it does. I think, I think, you know, and I think, I think being authentic is really, really, really important to podcasting, like letting yourself kind of um, be you and, and really letting your uh, views kind of, you know, and values and, and experiences kind of, come through this, you know, uh, and I, I, I don't know if I'm doing a great job of it. And I think that's the other thing about podcasting is we're all kind of stumbling through it. Um, yeah, <laughs> if you listen funny, to my like early I, episodes, <laughs> I mean, my favorite podcast to listen to is, is someone named Lex Friedman and the episodes often are three or four hours long and they're often topics I have zero knowledge about, but for some reason, like feeling like I'm in the room with him talking to an MIT scientist. They're talking to uh, these very well accomplished people. Like you feel smarter just by like associ- <laughs> just by association. So um, some yeah. of my best some of my best episodes, at least from my perspective and kind of what I've heard, have been conversations with professors and people who are teaching me. So then I feel like the listener can feel like they're just like in that learning as well. Like you might not be able to get a degree from UNH, but hopefully I can bring some of the stuff that you share in your classes to people. If they, uh, if they want a degree in UNH. <laughs> we do have a fully funded master's program. So there you we'll go. be accepting about seven to 10 students a, a year. So feel free the, to, uh, to, to register. <laughs> the last little prompt that we've asked pretty much every guest is, um, and maybe it's too uh, far reaching of a question, but what do you think needs to be done to make fitness more accessible for people with disabilities? I think I think knowledge dissemination, educational awareness is good. I think um, a really big thing in our field because I do think you know I, I I'm I identify as somebody in like the adapted physical activity realm of research and knowledge base. We need more representation of uh, uh, people with disabilities or disabled persons in those spaces, and I kind of think in all those spaces. So like in academia. Like we're, you know, generally like the people, when you look around at these conferences, including myself, it's mostly non-disabled people talking about disabled people. Um, And then I think in the same context of when you go to, like when you're going to fitness centers, like that would be really ideal too, is like, how do we put like people with disabilities in fitness centers um, at like as positions of authority slash, you know, uh, within those things. And then how, like, how do we, um, enable, like enable their expertise and, 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 you know, have representation at all those. And then in addition, like when we think about like sport and physical, like people that, like when we think of stars and people like that, like, are we able to conceive or think of a specific people with disabilities in those spaces? I think also representation in that way, kind of. Um, a allows us to have a new insight around um, disability and physical activity, but also um, makes those things seem more possible 
to everybody when we have those uh when we have uh you know just representation well scott thank you for joining me today we'll make sure we include uh some of the links to unh's uh recently conceived five-year uh, or one-year uh adapted pe program if anyone's interested in that uh, I'll include some links to your podcast as well. I've enjoyed listening to them over the years. Uh, there are some topics that I, I have listed out here that we could have di uh, dove into as well. Um, but it was a, uh, a great conversation as, as all of our previous ones have been. A lot of the times it was just like over the last few years, I was like, oh, it's a, had a great conversation with someone. I wish I had recorded it. And so now the <laughs> podcast is like, oh, now I can record it and go back to it. So uh, thanks again for your time and look forward to uh, hopefully staying in touch over the years. All right. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to the AdaptX podcast. Our effort to amplify the ideas of our guests and create more inclusive and accessible industries is futile unless these episodes reach a larger audience. If you enjoyed our discussion today, please leave us a rating or a review on whichever platform you use. And if you would like to learn more about AdaptX, the course that we teach to health and fitness professionals and the projects that our organization is working on, you can subscribe to our newsletter through our website, www.adaptx.org. Until next Monday.